0: chapter 5 is today we're going to talk about a little girl uh, and a grown woman and the importance of faith. As I mentioned in, in the prayer, you know, I hope you guys know that as you live life uh, in this world as a Christian, that we need more than just what human power can provide. You know, you guys are facing issues, you're facing problems, you have situations in your life And uh, you're not going to be able to overcome them. You're not going to go any further. You won't make any progress unless you experience the power of God. You know, we need Him in our life. And a lot of times what happens is we just go on and we continue to carry on. And then, you know, the years go by, the decades go by, and then you die. And maybe you're saved. I mean, I pray that we're all saved. But at the end of your life, there's a whole bunch of regrets, a whole bunch of woulda, coulda, shouldas, because you never really experience the fullness of what God wants to give. And the reason is, we're going to see it today, that a lot of times what happens is we become typical Christians, nominal Christians. You know, there's nothing really extraordinary about the way we seek the Lord, and so there's nothing really extraordinary about the way we walk with the Lord. And so we don't experience the miracles that God wants, to, uh, wants us to experience because we don't have faith the way that we're going to see today Jairus had or this woman had. And, and so we need to know who this Jesus is that we are walking with so that we can run to him, so that we can pray to him and that you and I would experience these things in life that he's called us to. And so there's so much here, uh, but let's begin in verse 21. It says, Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, speaking of Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, my little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. And so Jesus went with him and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. And so we've been you know, following the life of Christ and I pray that you guys are gleaning from it. You know, Jesus crosses over the sea, and when he gets there, there's a whole bunch of people. It's a multitude. It's a crowd. In Luke chapter 8, verse 40, it says that they welcomed Jesus. It even says that they were waiting for Jesus. And so the Lord's sailing across, and then all of a sudden, all these people, oh, there he is. He's coming, and they're super excited, right? But, you know, in this wait, in in this crowd, there was a great wait from a man named Jairus, And we're going to see his story. And we read about this guy. It says in verse 22, notice that he was one of the rulers of the synagogue. Now, some of you know what a synagogue is. Perhaps some of you don't. The Jewish synagogues have a fascinating history. Uh, They were established, actually, during the Babylonian captivity. When the Jews were taken out of the land, they were there in slavery. They were not allowed to go back to Jerusalem, back to the temple, And so what they began to do is they began to form little groups where they would study the scriptures together and they would pray. And and as time progressed, even when they were allowed to go back to Jerusalem, the Jews were scattered throughout the world. But the synagogues that began in Babylon actually continued to carry on so that in every community, wherever there were at least 10 Jewish men, they would actually establish a synagogue. And so it's kind of like a local church, you know, a local congregation. And so, you know, here's Jairus. It says he was actually the ruler of the synagogue. And so he was in a leadership position. It was his responsibility to select the reading for the day, the teacher for the day. He would oversee the public discussions whenever they had services He was to make sure everything was done decently and in order. He was even responsible for the benevolence that they would give out as the Jewish synagogues would serve their communities. And so here's this guy. Think about it for a second. He's a a Jewish leader in the synagogue with a great responsibility. But here it kind of trips you out a little bit that he would come to Jesus in such a way. You know, but that's what we read about him here. You know, I, I don't know if that, you know, triggers any type of thought in your mind. I know for me it does, because it's hard to bring people out of religion. You know, it's hard to bring someone who says, well, I was born a Catholic and I'm going to die a Catholic, or I, I'm Jewish, I, I can't become a Christian. Some people are like that, you know, whatever they're raised in, especially if an individual is a leader in that religion. You know, and especially when you look at the context and the backdrop of the life of Christ. I mean, the Jewish leaders, they were already antagonistic against him. They opposed him. They accused him of being in league with Lucifer. So when you look at the context of it, it, it just kind of blows your mind that he would cross so many barriers in order to come to Christ. And it makes you wonder, well, why, why did he do it? How did it happen? And you guys know, I know, though you guys know, because he's a dad. He's a dad who's desperate for his daughter. Right? I mean, life has a way, doesn't it, of getting our attention. You know, and religion's not enough, right? Money, the money he made, that's not enough. Respect from the community, that doesn't fill your heart. You have a prominent position or fame or fortune. That means nothing if you're losing your family, right? And so the ruler of the synagogue, he comes to Jesus. And we even read, notice there in verse 22, that he fell at his feet. I mean, Matthew 9.18 says he worshiped Jesus. You know, obviously a father, if you think about it, he's tried everything. He's exhausted all his resources. He'd be desperate. You would be desperate if your daughter was dying. Not only that, Luke 8.42 tells us it was his only daughter that was dying. And so you imagine the desperation of this dad and, and when I see him come to Jesus, you know what I see, you guys? Because we don't have Jesus here physically with us. But I see this as a picture of prayer. Don't you? Don't you kind of see it that way? You know, you're in a desperate situation. And, you know, there's so many of those types of things in the life that we live. And there's, you know, the situations we have for our children. Those are probably the toughest ones, aren't they? For those of you who are parents... You know, you can take everything away. Take my house, take my car, take my health, take me, but not my kids. Right? And life has a way of getting our attention because we love them so much, right? And so, you know, we pray. We finally come to a place in our life where we pray the way we should have prayed all along. Where does he come? He comes, look in verse 23, and he begged him earnestly. Can I ask you a question? Do you pray earnestly? Can you honestly say that you pray earnestly? I would imagine some of you here do. You are knocking on heaven's door the way that you should. But maybe some of us here don't. I encourage you, circle that word and just say, God, help me to pray Colossians chapter 4 verse 2, it says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. That's the way we should pray earnestly. You know, the Bible says in James chapter 5 verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. Now, earnestly, it's described as occurring to a greater extent with more sincerity and greater intensity. That's how we should pray. Why should we pray? Well, because we know that God is able to intervene. You know, do you guys believe that? I mean, I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what your situation is today. But do you believe that Jesus Christ is able to, to intervene. I mean, we got to have that hope. You know, and some of us, we go and we're thinking about different situations. And over the years, I have heard people tell me that, you know, he'll never, there's no hope for him. You know, the guy that teaches our Spanish study, Peter, I remember one guy who was an overseer of a ministry, he said, Why do you bother with him? There's no hope for him. As a pastor, I'll tell you what, we always have hope. When people, when parents, when individuals give up on people, we never give up on them because we know that God is able. And whatever the situation is, you know, we got to know that God is able to intervene. Jairus knew that. It's interesting how he knew that. I-, I love the way he says there. Notice in verse 23, he knows it. He says, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she will live. Some people, they, they look at others and they say, they'll never live. There's no hope for them. And you're not being the way that you should be as a Christian. You know, for us, we got to know that when Christ comes in, He is able to, to make that person live, no matter how dead or close to death they might be. And so it's just so cool We read in verse 24, Jesus, uh, he went with him, and the Bible tells us there, notice again, that a great multitude followed him and thronged him. They thronged him. And that word, it means that they pressed around him and they were crowding upon him. The Greek word, it means to press together on all sides... And so you can visualize Jesus going through. Everybody's trying to get to him. They're, you know, pressuring him. And, uh, but I'll tell you this, and this is what I was talking about earlier. Many were pressing, but only one was impressing. I kind of like that, right? Watch what happens. Notice we see next in verse 25. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians she had been spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse and so when she heard about jesus she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment for she said if only i may touch his clothes i shall be made well immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction and jesus immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him He turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And be healed of your affliction. You know, when you read this, there's no doubt that God weaves these two stories together the story of the little girl and the story of the grown woman. You're going to see some common denominators, things that are the same within each story, but then you also see some variables. You see some things that are different because we can't put God in a box, we never should. But it's so cool how the Lord, you know, he has a heart, obviously, for both. You know, it's interesting, when you think this one through, the daughter had a daddy, right? She had a daddy. As a matter of fact, since Jairus was a synagogue leader, I wouldn't be surprised if most of the crowd that was there waiting for Jesus on the other side of the sea was part of his congregation, right? Because they knew him, he was well-known, You know, they knew his little girl was sick. And so when they knew Jesus was coming, I bet you a lot of those people within that crowd were part of his congregation. So in one sense, Jairus was in no way alone. He had a whole bunch of people with him, right? But um, this woman had no one. And we're going to see that emphasized when you look at the backdrop of what she was suffering. She was all alone. She was all alone. Undoubtedly, part of the reason she was all alone was because we read in our text that she had a flow of blood for 12 years. Now, now, you know, that must have been awful. According to Jewish law, a woman was considered to be ceremonially ceremonially unclean when she was bleeding, as women normally do in their their monthly uh, cycle, as well as anything beyond the norm. And so, she would be considered unclean, and as a result of that, she would, in one sense, be all alone. Um, I want you to mark your Bibles here, and if you would, go back to Leviticus chapter 15. Leviticus 15 This is where she was living in as she was under the law. Moses writes, if a woman has a discharge, the discharge from her body is blood. She shall be set apart seven days and whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. Everything that she lies on during her impurity shall be unclean. Also, everything that she sits on shall be unclean. Whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And whoever touches anything that she sat on shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. If anything is on her bed or on anything under which she sits when he touches it, he shall be unclean until evening. And if any man lies with her at all so that her impurity is on him, he shall be unclean seven days. And every bed in which he lies shall be unclean. I mean, this uncleanness would spread like wildfire. And so it says in verse 25, If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, other than at the time of her custom, customary impurity, or if it runs beyond her usual time of impurity, that's what this woman is experiencing, right? All the days of her unclean discharge she shall be as the days of her customary impurity she shall be unclean and so the the levitical law says that she is to be set apart she is to be all alone i mean in in one sense you know it's not just that you're going to be unclean god is saying don't touch her don't touch her no one should touch her, no one was to sit on a chair, a couch, a bench, or a bed that she sat on, or they would be considered unclean, according to the scriptures, all the days of her discharge, she would basically in a large sense, be all alone and the thing about it, you know not only was it isolation from the human world but it even carried within it a certain aspect of separation from God. She couldn't attend synagogue services, take part in temple worship. You know, basically during this time, she would feel rejected and unacceptable to God. So for twelve years, this was her life. You know, and, and it wasn't that she hadn't tried to rectify the situation. She tried over and over again. You know, we read back in in, in the Gospel of Mark that she spent all her money on medicine. Every dollar she had, she spent it on doctors. But rather than getting better, the Bible says that she only got worse. Nothing was helping. And, you know, when you take medication, you guys know how it is. I mean, sometimes you got the side effects of medication. And so her condition was worsening and things are getting, you know, worse. And and so she's in this situation really of absolute Hopelessness. There's nothing you can do. There's no hope. There's nothing you can do. The situation that you're in, let me tell you something. There is nothing you can do. You can throw money at it. It won't help. You know, you can, you know, try all the medication. You can go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist or some type of human counselor or expert. But there is nothing that you can. That we can do. But there is something that Jesus can do. And somewhere along the line, she heard about that. She said, hmm, the situation that I'm in, that I find myself in, there's no hope. You know, but when she heard about Christ, and who knows, maybe she saw him do something. I'm not sure exactly how she found out, but somehow, some way she heard about Jesus. And as a result of that, she came to him. Let me tell you something. We'll, We'll talk about this as we close our study today. But just to emphasize that, you need to go to Jesus. Stop complaining about your situation. Stop even crying to others. If you really want God to work, then go to Jesus. That's what she did. You know, she came in faith. She was thoroughly convinced that Christ could heal her. I don't know how it happened, but somehow she had this great faith. She just knew that, you know, she could even go through the crowd. She didn't even have to say a word to him. All she had to do was make her way through and just touch the hem of his garment. And there's a message there. And, you know, she would be made well. And going through the crowd, it wouldn't be easy because we were talking about how everybody's thronging Jesus, right? You know, you go to Jesus, not going to be easy. You know, the, the, you, all right, I want to go to Christ. What's the devil going to do, man? He's going to try to block you in every way. He'll distract you. I mean, going to Christ is sometimes it's not that easy, but you got to make your way through. You say this: come hell or high water, nothing will stop me. And so she makes her way through the crowd. And you know what ends up happening is God, I like what we sang today. He breaks the chains. He breaks the chains that you are bound with. He breaks those chains. But you got to go to Christ. I mean, there is power, there is wonder working power in the person. In the name of Jesus Christ, to break the chains, and you got to know that you got to believe that. You know, some of us here we're thinking, well, their chains need to be broken, and you know, praise God that we can stand in the gap for other people. But maybe you have your own chains that need to be broken that you are bound with by the enemy. And so the woman here is an example to us that she's. Just thinking to herself, uh, I'm gonna go and touch, and next thing you know, she's healed. Imagine how that must have felt. You know, after 12 years of a flowing blood, instantly the power of Jesus Christ is then, you know, it just floods her body, you know, physically, emotionally, spiritually, she experiences that. I'll never forget the day that I got saved. (sighs) Instantly, I was walking on the clouds. Instantly, my eyes were open. I was set free. Instantly. That's what happened to her. And so when it happens, she's just thinking, okay, thank you, Lord. And she's just going to walk away. And she says, I'm going to slip away quietly, right? And no one's going to know, but it's kind of cool the way Jesus stops her. And you know, when you read the other gospels, here it just says he turned around, but there he says he stopped, you know, so everybody probably bumped into him, right? And he and he turns around and he says, Who touched me? And in the Greek language, it says he kept on asking, Who touched me? Who touched me? When the disciples hear him ask that question, they say, How can you ask who touched you? There's a ton of people touching you, right? But Jesus knew that someone had done so differently someone's faith had found his power. He knew that. And that's the way it is. You know, we go with a whole bunch of people, there's throngs, and they're all singing. But there is one that's really singing. They're worshiping. God sees that. He sifts through all that. And he sees some, they say they believe, and maybe they do a little bit, but then there's that one right there. They really believe. That's what ends up happening right here. Jesus knew that someone had done so differently and that power had gone out from him. We read that there in verse 30. Jesus immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out. And so Jesus stops and asks, who touched me? Now again, we have to think, it's not, the Lord doesn't, you know, it's not like he doesn't know who touched him. And so let me ask you guys a question. Why did he ask? So, why did he ask? Who touched me? You know, and uh, some say it was because he wanted it to be a public testimony that all would see what Christ had done. And I think there's some truth to that. I think that it would even be helpful for Jairus. I think that's true that Jairus needed to see the power of Christ because in a moment he's going to find out that his daughter's dead. And he's going to think it's too late. But it's not too late. Cause look at how powerful Christ is. So there is an element of public testimony, but, but ultimately that's not the real reason he asked who touch me. The real reason is because he wanted to talk to her. Because he loved her. And praise God for the crowds. But within the congregation, you know, there's the people that are there that are sitting in the sanctuary that can't hide from him. And he says, I want to talk to you. And so he stops and he asks, who touched me? And what ends up happening was the woman, she's not quick to come forward. She's afraid, the Bible says. Look, it says right there in verse 33, the woman fearing and trembling. And it makes you almost wonder, well, why is she afraid? I mean, she had so much faith to go through the crowd and touch Jesus. Doesn't look like she's afraid, but apparently now she is, and you wonder why. And a lot of people believe it's because maybe she was thinking that Jesus would undo what he had just done. Right? I mean, we don't know for sure. You know, but I do know this that 12 years of thinking that God doesn't love me can take its toll. Right. And there's some people they don't they don't know how much God loves them. There's some people they grow up always being put down. So how can God love them? You know some guys, you know they don't have a dad. They never had a dad. So how can they believe in a father God who loves them? That's probably where this woman was. She was afraid. That Jesus would undo what he just did. She felt unworthy. She had been unclean for so long. But it's cool. The Lord speaks to her. And there's three things that kind of just jumped out at me. The first thing that he told her is that she had a father. That she did have a father. Because notice what the Lord says. Verse 34, what's the first word? Daughter. Jesus calls her daughter. I mean, here's the crowd. You look at that crowd marching forward. That 12-year-old little girl has her daddy that's standing in the gap for her and... And maybe this grown woman right here didn't have any more or never had a father like that, a daddy who would care. But the Lord, first thing He says, I want you to know, sweetheart, you are someone's little girl too. You belong to your heavenly Father by faith. You are God's daughter. And it's important for us to know our identity, you guys. It really is. I mean... You know, for us to know that we have a Father and that we are a child of God. And when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, we're not perfect. We still fall short. But it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from our sins. Do you believe in Jesus, that he died for you, that he rose again? That one day when you stand before God, almighty God, when you stand before him one day and he asks you, why should I let you into heaven? You you just say, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus died for me, Jesus rose again, Jesus is my Lord, Jesus is my Savior, it's Jesus that gets me in, when you're there, then you're a child of God, and you got to know that, and your identity, it's so cool, the way it works, it changes everything. I'll tell you this real quick, the world is completely the opposite of that. In the world, they say that it begins, first of all, with your desires, And then your desires determine your action. And then your actions determine your identity. So you want to drink? Go ahead and get drunk. And you become a drunk. That's the way the world sees things. It can be drinking. It could be dancing. I, I want to dance. So I dance. And you're known as a dancer. Right? That's the way the world is. But with the church, it's the opposite. First, it's who you're known as in God's eyes your identity I'm a child of God and then that then determines your actions well I better obey him I should obey him I'm a child of God and then what ends up happening is when you begin to obey God then your desires change cuz you start you know loving people cuz you're commanded to and the next thing you know You see how beautiful it is to love the unlovely. And you start changing the way you live. Even the way the desires of your heart change. So the first thing the Lord says to her is, I want you to know who you are, your identity, that you have a father and that you are a daughter. So first, it's her father. Secondly, it's her faith. He says right there in verse 34, Daughter, your faith has made you well. You know, and when we look at this, we know it was the power of Jesus Christ that healed her, but, you know, she needed to know that it was her faith that drew out that power. I mean, if the power of Jesus Christ is present right here today to heal us and to change us and to impact this world, then why is it that we are oftentimes not experiencing that power? And the answer is because we lack faith, right? Right? I mean, it was her trust and confidence in Christ. And there's a lesson there. We're going to talk on this more towards the end. But I think in one sense, I'll be honest with you, what Jesus was doing was he was telling her, Good job, sweetheart. I am so proud of you. I am so blessed by you. I mean, it wasn't just some theological declaration. It was a commendation from Christ. Hey, you, you did it. You know, I yeah, I I gave you the power and, and you brought it out, though. You know, and there's that cooperation that we have with God. That's why, you know, some Christians, they, they live that life and others don't. It's not because they're better. There's never, they're better. It's just that they have faith. And so we read about her father, we read about her faith, and then we read about her future, the Lord says, there, Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. You know, this is her future now. It's a future of of joy. You know, be of good cheer, smile. I mean, and I'm not saying that from this point forward she never experienced any difficulties. I'm sure she did because we live in a fallen world, right? But the, he wanted her to, to, to be of good cheer, smile, sweetheart, you know, have joy for your journey. When things come our way, you guys, no matter what it is, it's been filtered through the sovereign hands of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and so we can actually have joy uh, for the journey. I mean, what does the Bible say? It says, count all joy when you fall into various trials, and when the testing of our faith produces endurance, Right? And so what does that mean? It means that you are to be happy when you have trials. You, you're, yeah, praise God, a trial's coming. How many of you do that? Just out of curiosity. <laughs> I was talking to my son yesterday about this because we had kind of like a, 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 an analogy. Okay, yesterday, God forgive me for this, but we were, uh, we were trying to keep um, one of the brother's Away from his house because they were having a surprise party for him. And so we were trying to stall. Have you guys ever been in a situation like that? Okay, so this is the thing that we were on the freeway. We said, oh man, we're going to get home too soon. So you know what we were praying for on the freeway? Traffic. We were praying, Lord, please let it be a dead stop traffic right now. And I was talking to my son. I said, can you believe this? All of our life, we've prayed for no traffic. <laughs> now we're praying for traffic. And there's like a, and then all of a sudden, I thought about that. I'm all, that's how we should be with trials. All of our life, we're like, no, no, no trials, no problems. And the Lord just kind of opened my eyes. And he said, you know what? Pray for them. If you need them, then pray for them, Right? And that's what this woman's future is. It's not going to be easy, but I want you to be of good cheer. I want you to have joy for the journey, peace for the path. Why? Because I'm with you and your life is different now. And what ends up happening is God gives us a future that is found in Him. I love Proverbs 4.18. It says, The path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter. In other words, it's brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter unto the perfect day. See, that's the future for this woman. She would not have to go back to the afflictions that she'd experienced previously because I think that that sometimes is our greatest fear. We're like, I came to Christ and things are better now, but I'm so afraid, I'm so afraid, I'm so afraid that I'm going to go back. And the Lord says, no, you're mine now. And I've got this future for you. You see, that's what Jesus can do no matter how weak you are or how bleak the situation might be. And even if it gets worse, watch what happens next in verse 35. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, and the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult, and those who wept and wailed loudly. And when he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. And then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked for she was 12 years of age and they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it. And said that something should be given her to eat. You know, so the enemy comes in and he says, Well, it's too late. It's too late, right? It's over. It's done. She's dead. She's dead. Your marriage is, is dead. Your ministry is dead. It's over you know your son your situation they're beyond hope my situation is too difficult for for god and and we learned this morning that that is never the case never not on this side of time you know and and for us we got to ask our ourselves that question do we believe and and, and therefore can we receive cuz somehow woven within the mystery of the miracles that Jesus does the reality of it is that you and I we got to have faith we got to believe we have to where there's no faith there's no salvation where there's no faith there's no manifestation a lack of faith that limits our lord we read in Matthew 13, 58, the Bible says, Now he, Jesus, did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And so when the bad news comes to the dad, Jairus is there and he hears his daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any longer? It's too late now. Jesus immediately, he immediately speaks to him and says there in the text, He said to him, Do not be afraid, only believe. Now, if it had nothing to do with his faith, Jesus wouldn't tell him that. He'd just say, oh, let's just keep going. But no, it's got something to do with his faith. And so he encourages him to believe. And so, you know, Jairus, apparently, he he held on to that hope. And so they, they kept going. And for some of you here, that's kind of the way it'll manifest itself. You have to keep going. Don't be a quitter. Don't be a splitter. Just keep going. That's what they did. They kept going, right? And and when they when they got there, you know, the Bible says that he permitted no one to follow him except for the three Peter, James, and John. And when they get to the house, people are are weeping and wailing, and they're supposed to be because it was a twelve-year-old girl who just died. And so, in one sense, you know, it's understandable. But here's what changes everything. When Jesus walks into the room, that's what changes everything. That's what should change everything, right? I mean, when Jesus walks in, we got to know that there's life. And after all the Lord had done, I think in one sense the people should have known that by now. Oh, Jesus is here. You know, and Jesus wasn't omnipresent at that time, you know. So you've got all of Israel and he's going north and south. He's all along the Galilee's and sometimes going down to Jerusalem. And so, you know, they're in this situation, but, but Jesus is there. Let me tell you something. When the Holy Spirit was sent, Jesus said it's better now because now I can be everywhere, right? And he's here. And so when Jesus comes in, he says, hey, you don't have to cry anymore. You don't need the a, a tumult or the commotion or the chaos anymore. You know, because Jesus comes in, right? And, of course, they ridiculed him. But Jesus takes the three apostles, the two parents. He enters the room. And when he does, what ends up happening? Death flees, huh? I mean, because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, right? He's the way, the truth, and the life. And it's so cool that when you read the tender way that he did it, he just takes the little girl by her little hand and he speaks in Aramaic, Talitha kumi," which means "little girl, arise." And immediately she rises and walks, and everyone is blown away, and they're flooded with joy. And this, when I in my notes, this is where I put, I put Salah. You guys know what Salah means? Just man, just ponder that for a moment. Wow. You know, for us, it doesn't mean that they're gonna always physically be healed because one day we're going to die one day maybe you're going to hear that i have some terminal disease or whatever i got in a car accident or you know i don't know i got shot i don't know i don't know i'm going to die but you guys know that that's going to be my healing you guys know that that's my way one day i'll be home with with him in heaven and so you know but but with the power that jesus demonstrates over death you know you don't have to cry You can rejoice. And that's all the Lord is showing right here. How he gutted the grave, defeated death. He conquered the coffin. If he wants to, though, he can heal you of your terminal disease in the the twinkling of an eye. And so what I always do when people are sick is I just keep praying. I keep asking, Lord, please. And I believe, and God has done tremendous works and so, whenever the Lord showed up at a funeral, Luke 7:14, 15, or even with Lazarus, He told him to come forth. I mean, He always defeats death. And in looking at our story, in closing today, I pray that you're encouraged. You know, to know a lot of things. I mean, you have to know, of course, your own responsibilities. Uh, I will share three things with you. Number one, come to Christ. Come to Christ if you're not a Christian. Even if you are, you come to Christ. Number two, come totally, not typically. Come totally. That's how Jairus came. Everybody was waiting, but he had this great wait. He was really waiting. And everybody was pressing, but the woman was different. She was impressing. So you come to Christ and you come to him totally, totally. Not typically. And then when you come to Christ, the third thing is this, is you come by faith. Jesus, I know this situation that I'm in, that my loved one is in. It's impossible with man. I've I've come, you read Psalm 107. We didn't have time to go there, but I encourage you to read Psalm 107. It says that those who go out into the waters into the deeps, they will see the wonders and works of God. And as they're going through the storm, the Bible says they come to their wit's end. There's nothing else I can do. It says, and then they cry out to the Lord. Lord, there's nothing I can do, but I believe in you. I believe you can. And you come to Christ, and you come totally, not typically, and you come by faith and not fear, and you watch what God will do.